You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. We are starting a brand new series today called Unsung Heroes. Now, what that basically is about is that, you know, sometimes we read through Scripture and we'll come across a brief mention or a very short story or short description of someone and about something that they did. But we really never uh, kind of park on that and discover just how significant it was, the impact they had in the context they were in. And what we want to do is just take a few weeks to kind of pick some of those people out that is in Scripture and really just take some time to really see the, uh, what the significance of what they brought in that time and that place in that Scripture. So today we're going to be talking about an unsung hero, Beniah. Now, if we hear a short description about him in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and also 2 Samuel chapter 23, it describes the same scenario in both of those places. I want us to look in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to start with verse 20. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now, rather than just reading that, I want to I dissect it a little bit, and let's talk about the significance of what happened there, okay? So, first of all, we hear that he killed two Moabs. Now, the, there's a word in there that's uh, called Ariel in one of the, the descriptions, one of the translations, Ariel, and that Hebrew word is kind of uh, describes heroic, lion-like. These were lion-like, heroic, hugely, I mean, stoutly men that he went against two of them and he killed them. The next thing that we see described in there was that he killed an Egyptian. Now in the first Chronicles chapter 11, it talks a little bit more of description about the Egyptian. This was a huge Egyptian. I believe a little over four cubits tall, which is about seven and a half feet tall. This man was seven and a half feet tall. And what it says is that Benaiah went against him with a club, and a club is really rel- rel- relatively short. And this guy had a spear. Now let's talk about that spear. Now we hear, you know, you've heard the story of David and Goliath, and Goliath, uh, they estimate him to be about a little bit over nine feet tall. So the spear that he had, even in Goliath's description, and in this one, it's, it's, it implies the same thing. The spear was about the thickness of a weaver's beam. Now, a weaver's beam was around two to two and a half inches thick. So it was a pretty significantly thick beam. Now, you take that, and you know a spear has got usually taller than the person carrying it. So in Goliath's case, they estimated that the spear could have been probably anywhere from 14, 16 feet. And so for this Egyptian, it's going to be shorter, of course, but still, that's a pretty hefty chunk of wood that you're carrying around that you're supposed to throw and to use as a weapon. Now, Goliath's spearhead was made of iron, and they estimated that Scripture tells us that it was around 19 pounds, had a 19-pound weight and a two and a half inch thick weaver's beam-like shaft, and you're going to use that as a weapon. 
So Benaiah faces this seven and a half foot tall Egyptian with this massive weapon. He takes his little billy club, knocks him upside the head, takes the weapon away from him and turns and kills him with it. Guy's got my admiration. I mean, that's pretty significant, but it doesn't stop there. Then we hear about that he chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Now, that pit, that word in Hebrew also means something called cistern. And a cistern was something that it was uh, either could be used to uh, contain waste, but mostly it was used to contain water up in the desert. And I've got a picture here I want to show you about that. This is from an archaeological expedition. There are three students in there that are in an abandoned cistern. Now, look at that. That's pretty tiny. There's not a lot of room to move around in there because those are kind of, they look like kind of small people. So there's not a lot of room to move in there. You think of a lion. A lion is about 420 pounds, a male lion is. And he falls down in there. He's got the, you know, the, the lion has got the advantage in case you don't know. He's got the razor sharp claws. He can leap horizontally to distances up to 36 feet if required. But the thing about lions is that they're not really good at climbing. Now, we don't know why Benaiah went into the pit, but I can, we can kind of speculate as to what the motivation was there. Now, during that time, a lot of times there were hunts for lions. Uh, people went and hunted lions and brought them back for the king. That was a practice that was uh, common during that time. Or did the lion just fall into the pit and it was a mercy kill- killing? Where Benaiah just said, hey, you know what? Um, don't, rather than it suffer a slow death, I'm going to go over there and just take care of it. I don't know about you, but I would probably have gotten to the edge of that pit and looked down and said, I'm sorry, cat allergy. can't handle it. There's no way I can see myself getting into a tight, confined space with a 420-pound ravenous creature with razor-sharp claws and to say, hey, I'm going to take this on and kill it. But that's what Benaiah did. And that's kind of the setting of who this guy is. And what, and what he was about. But there was more to him than that because we read in scripture later on that he had, uh, you know, he also not only served David, but he served Solomon, that he had a longevity in his career. And I think it was rooted a lot in who he was and what the kind of the foundation was for him to display this level of courageousness. And that's the essence of what we're going to be talking about this morning is courage, the courage that Benaiah displayed. Now, in our culture today, we kind of tend to think about, uh, you know, courage in a way I don't think is accurate. You know, because of social media, because of, you know, a lot of uh, television programming and the way that our culture is just set up, you know, we have to understand the fact is that we are always being discipled. We just have to choose who we're being discipled by. You cannot help but be discipled. And if you're not going to be discipled by Jesus, you're going to be discipled by the culture. And you don't have a choice in the matter because we're wired to worship and one way or the other, we're going to be influenced by whatever we choose to put our focus on. And our culture is kind of helping us to become something that we really don't want to be. This idea of being, you know, uh, seeing people that, oh, that person's really courageous because he stood up and he spoke out about this or he did that. Yeah, but the way in which he did it, it doesn't seem courageous to me. It seems more like bravado. And there's a difference between courage and bravado. Bravado is a bold manner, it's a show of boldness that is intended to impress or to intimidate. Bravado promotes self. 
We see a lot about that today and the fact that, you know, well, we really just become a very rude, obnoxious, arrogant culture. It's kind of, you know, like, I'm going to say what I want to say, how I want to say it, and I'm going to get on Facebook, and I'm going to, and I spoke up, I stood for the truth. No, you were just being a jerk. There's a difference. You're being obnoxious. You're being arrogant. It's all about you. And we, people that operate in this way, if you notice, they always tend to speak from a position of strength. They're never in the weak spot. They've always got one up. I'll tell you what, that ever happened to me, I'd take them down. You don't want to mess with me because you, you know what, you know what I, I've, I've done it before. I'll knock them down. It's always from this position of strength. There's no humility in it whatsoever. That is not courage. That's a sense of bravado and you puffing yourself up. And that is only going to get you so far. It may get you a little way, but that is not a kingdom attitude. And that's not what we're called to display as believers. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens somebody. It's the strength in face of pain or grief. Courage, sacrifice, self. It's doing what's right regardless of circumstance or consequences. Courage requires you to sacrifice something of yourself or be willing to sacrifice something of yourself. And it's usually about something other than you. It's for a greater cause or it's for another person that we stand up and we say, no, I'm going to either fight or I'm going to step out in the face of injustice. I'm going to do whatever is necessary, but I'm willing to lay myself down, to put myself down on the line for the sake of this, that person or that cause. That's what courage is. Let's talk about it in a biblical context. First of all, looking at Benaiah, how did he get to be this guy? That's what I want to know. How did he get to be this person? Did he just wake up one day and said, I'm going to go kill a lion today? And he does the kills a lion and goes, uh, gets out of the pit and goes, selfie. He's not that, not, not that type of guy. He's not about being you know, bragging. But he really stepped out and he did something, and it was something within him. One of the first things we have to realize is that courage is contagious. Courage is something that can be passed down. If you look at Scripture in 1 Chronicles 12, 27, we're told that Jehoiada was a leader among the priests and he had rallied 3,700 men to support David when he was crowned at Hebron. He was loyal to David to see him established on the throne. Benaiah grew up in a culture that valued and loved God. And his father displayed that. His father was loyal to the king and his father rallied men up in order to support that. There was something foundational in his upbringing. There was something secure in the way that he brought that up. Jehoiada created a culture of courageous, where he could be courageous, that provided that. You know, we're talking about fathers and Father's Day today. And fathers, that is your responsibility today is to provide a culture to where your kids can grow up in a sense of being able to encounter difficulty, to encounter challenges, but to do it with a sense where they are doing it in a courageous manner. And they're not going to back off. They're not going to walk in fear, but they're going to walk in a sense of knowing who their God is and that he's got their back. You provide a culture where your family is taught to face their fears or difficulty. You know, 
look at scripture. David was a shepherd, okay? And what's the shepherd's responsibility? Protect the sheep, all right? So do you think that David was sitting there as he was you know, singing psalms and praying to God on the hill and uh, wherever he was in the meadow, wherever it was in the, you know, in, uh, during that time. Do you think that he was kind of saying, you know, God, I just pray that there are no lions or bears or anything that would come against these sheep and God that, you know, that, that would never, ever, ever happen? No. In fact, we read about the fact that he had to, he had to encounter those things. That God didn't protect him from the lions or the bears or the other predators that would come and take the sheep. He allowed it to happen. You know why? Because guess what it was? It was target practice. It was preparation for what God was calling him to in the future. He had had enough practice against going against these massive predators and being on guard and building up courage and knowing what was required in order to protect his sheep, he had gotten to this point to where uh, when he came time to face Goliath, he was able to do so since he may have been afraid. He may have been looking at this probably over nine foot tall person and going, oh, wow, but there may have been fear there, but he had practiced the courageous, to be able to be courageous and to step forward and to do something that propelled him into his destiny. And when we protect our kids and protect ourselves from, you know, challenges and not wanting to face our fears, not wanting to press into those things that we think that are, you know, may be harmful to us, but rather pressing through and embracing on the other side what God may have for us. You know, rather than praying to get out of our circumstances, we should be praying what he wants us to get out of our circumstances. Rather than praying to get out of our circumstances, we should be asking God what he wants us to get out of our circumstances. God, this is a trial. This is a challenge right now. What do you want me to learn? Help me to be aware. We can always pray for deliverance, but, also, but always knowing that that's within God's hand. That's within his timing. That's within his control. But in the meanwhile, that we're to be asking God, you know, how... What is it you want me to learn in this process? You know, uh, years ago, I used to have a, a pretty significant fear of flying. And every time I'd drive up to the airport and get ready, my stomach would just start to churn. And, you know, I, I just dread getting on the plane. And when the takeoff, I mean, it was white knuckle. I'm sure Southwest Airlines has a number of seats with claw marks that are permanently indented in there. In their, I, I just... I, I, I just I couldn't handle it. And so every day, you know, every time I would have to fly, and I was stepping into a job that was requiring me to travel across the country more and uh, speak, and I was having to, you know, do a lot more flying. And I remember, you know, asking God, say, God, please let this be a smooth flight. I pray that your mighty hand would just lift the plane up, God, and help it to guide smoothly. And that would, you know, all the stuff that I would, you know, just my mantra, I'm lighting incense, I'm doing whatever I necessarily need to do before I get on the plane. And then finally I heard God say, you know, Jeff, when have I ever promised you a smooth ride in anything? I'm like, well... <laughs> Why can't there be? <laughs> you know, that I've never promised you a smooth ride in anything, but I have promised I will always give you the grace to endure the ride. And it was at that moment something broke and realized, you know what? I've got to really let go of this 
And I'm really going to have to be able to, I'm going to have to step forward and say, all right, this is all within God's control. I'm going to trust that he um, knows what he's doing and that if I'm going to embrace what he has for me in this season of my life, I'm going to have to let it go. And once I did and began to walk in that, then it broke. Now I can get on a plane, and it's like <laughs> taking off, and I'm going, ah, this is interfering my reading. I wish it'd level off. You know, it just, it, it's, it's not that big of a deal anymore, but it wasn't until we're able to face our fears. And we have to be able to teach our kids to do that, not necessarily protect, it, protect them, but to face their fear so that they will be able to have that, that courage that's necessary for to embrace what God has for them. We have to remember that God is committed to our growth. He's not committed to our comfort. And we live in such a comfortable culture. This area that we live in, in Cornelius, is so affluent and so comfortable. Everything is about our comfort. Everything needs to be readily accessible. And we don't really want to have to go outside our comfort zone really much to do anything. Some of us just get upset when somebody sits in our seat on Sunday morning. And we walk by and give them the death glare. And walk away. We get so upset about such petty things and going, let it go. This is not as mature believers. That's not maturity. That's immaturity. That's pettiness. And God has called us to something greater. He's called us to be a courageous people. He's called us to walk in courage each and every day. And we have to understand that we can't be committed to our comfort. And we have to understand that courage costs. It costs something. It will cost you physically. It may cost you emotionally. It may cost you financially. Or it may cost you relationally. It's going to require you to be willing to give something up. To lose something. I think of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world or in other countries that are anti-Christian where they are suffering things that I cannot even imagine, that they're enduring torture. That I read about some of the ways these people are tortured and treated and executed and going, man can't think this. This comes from the pit of hell. This is demonic that something like that could happen. But they're willing to stand up and say, no, Christ is my Lord, he is my Savior, and I will not bow to anything else, even if it means that I die the most horrific death possible. Now, I believe God gives grace in the moment that he requires somebody to uh, become a martyr. I believe there's a supernatural grace that comes in that time that he gives them. But there's also, I believe, that there's a building of character. There's a building of something that, to where they're conditioned, to where they're able to step into that level of courage. And they also, they have an understanding of who God is. They have a value of who God is that I believe many of us cannot comprehend. Courage costs. It requires something of you. And we have to be willing to sacrifice and to let go if we're going to embrace that. We have to remember that destiny is never tied to what you possess. It's tied to what you're willing to give up. Destiny is never tied to what you possess. It's tied to what you're willing to give up. 
Some of us are wanting to embrace our destiny or wanting to know why it's not happening. It's because you're not willing to let go of what's in your hand so that it can be free to embrace what God has for you in the next season. You have to be willing to sacrifice and let go. Walking with Jesus is walking with empty hands, or open hands better, to where whatever he determines needs to be in that hand in that season, he's free to do so. But when we walk with a closed fist and holding on to what it is that we believe that is valuable to us, then we're not free to grasp what God has for us next. Courage costs, but it also, courage reflects character. There was a level of character within Benaiah. It spoke to him. I mean, to me, it says something. It's, I, I, I wonder why it was written in there that it says that he was as great as the three, or he's great, great, as great as the 30, but he was not part of the three. That there were three warriors that were highly esteemed by David, and they were kind of that, that, that inner circle. But he wasn't one of them. So did Benaiah just kind of go, look, I killed a lion, I killed two Moabites, and I killed an Egyptian. I deserve to be the fourth musketeer in this situation. I should be there. But no, we're not read about that. In fact, what happened is that God, or that David actually made him over his bodyguard and if you read back in 1 Samuel, what was David to Saul? David was captain of his bodyguard. David knew the value of that position, and, and he knew the type of person that needed to occupy that position. And so he made Benaiah over his bodyguard in that time. I believe it, came from a st- it stemmed from a level of humility that was probably exemplified within him. You know, humility, the definition of humility is properly placed confidence. You know, we see a lot of that today, but you know, you watch the talent shows, you watch a lot of Christian TV and such, whatever, and somebody gets finished singing, and you know, everybody applauds and claps, and they're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's him, it's him. And I, I, I think it's great that they're giving glory to God for the situation, but you know, sometimes when somebody says, you know, it's all Jesus, like, no, if it was all Jesus, it would have been better. The thing is, God gives each and every one of us talents. He gives each and every one of us skills. You know, the parables, you know, explain that, that everybody is given a talent or a measure or a gift. It's up to you what you do with it. And some develop it better than others. Some are lazy and don't. Some, you know, have less, but they grow it into a level where it surpasses everybody. It's amazing to watch all of that. But, you know, and God, and God, you know, and that's something that you've done. That you've, It's okay to say, you know, somebody says, good job on that. Go, thank you. I appreciate that. We don't have to walk in religiousness and go, okay, well, it's all God, it's all Jesus. Like, no, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But we don't walk in a sense of going, hey, it was all me. I did the work. I'm a self-made man. Everything I did was because of me. That is not humility. That's pride. Because while you may have done the work to develop your skill and your gifting and such, God provided context and opportunity and circumstance. So we have to have a properly placed confidence. Humility is walking in that properly placed confidence of knowing that he reigns over all, that he is all-powerful. Courage, that character of courage is sacrificial, it's compassionate, it confronts injustice. 
You know, I'm, I'm so glad that there, we're, you know, we're living in a culture now to where we're really becoming passionate about certain uh, injustice in this world and going after certain things to where people are being demeaned and violated and devalued, uh, regardless of whatever it is. But what I look for specifically are not people that just kind of get on Facebook or social media and they believe that they're to be nothing but just kind of a voice of awareness. That only goes so far. Confronting injustice requires the courage to take action. Do something about it at some level, in some way. But until you're willing to step forward and actually do something, to partner with somebody that's doing something, or to step out, if you feel so passionate about a topic, then step out and do something about it. That's what we're called to do. Just, you know, sounding the alarm and bringing awareness. You've seen those commercials on TV where, uh, you know, it's about the credit monitor and the, this bank is getting robbed. And this guy, you know, and meanwhile everybody's on the ground and the security guard's going, we're being robbed. And they say, aren't you supposed to do something? He said, no, I'm just a monitor. I don't, I'm actually not required to do anything. We're required as the church to do something. So we, we have to have the courage to confront injustice in a way that reflects God's grace and compassion and his character. We are perseverant. It's rooted in conviction, and it takes action. So courage reflects character. But there are three things that will kill courage. Now, if you look back at the story, it says that he killed two Moabites. That has some significance. I believe there's some prophetic significance in the midst of that. Because do you know who the Moabites were? The Moabites descended from the eldest daughter of Lot. After Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Lot's the oldest daughter basically said, Hey, this is the only man around. I've got to have a baby. I'm gonna, if we're going to continue this line, then I've got to do something. She gets her father's drunk, and then she gets pregnant by him. And out of that descends the Moab line. And basically, you know, the Hebrew translation for Moab is pain in the hiney. Because that's what they were through most, uh, <laughs> through most of the, what you read in the Bible. They were always a point of contention with Israel. And as a result, what they represent, they represent compromise, they represent faithlessness, they represent fulfilling one's own destiny. It's about taking control, saying that I'm going to have control over this situation. I'm going to do what's necessary because I know what's best. It's operating in the flesh. And that will kill courage because it's about you taking it on and not having confidence in the God who reigns. It's having confidence in the flesh. Next is the world. Egypt represented the world. It was the world's superpower at that time. It represented affluence. It was a represented culture, uh, government, all of the things there. It was a great power at that time. And that, you know, the killing of that Egyptian was a slaying of the world. To recognize that the world does not have authority. The world does not have power. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Walking in that level of authority, not allowing the world to tell you what your destiny is or, what God, or to contradict or compromise what God has commanded us in his word. And then 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Killing that lion was like killing the, it was overcoming the devil. That we have an enemy that seeks to roam around and to destroy us. 
And we have to realize that, that there is a supernatural that we are contending against, that we have to fight against, that wants to instill fear within us, that wants to rob us of our confidence, and that wants to kill courage. Because he knows that if he can kill courage in us, then he can prevent us from embracing the destiny that God has for us. The three killers are flesh, the world, and the devil. But you know what the common weapon of each and every one of them is? Fear. Fear is the common weapon in each and every one of these. And do you know how you defeat fear? You kill fear with fear. Like, okay, wait a minute. I thought fear was a weapon here. Yeah, but hear me out. You kill fear with fear. There are two types of fear. Well, there's more than that. Obviously, there's a fear that if, you know, you see a tornado coming, you're going to turn and run away and run away. That's a healthy fear. You know, running away from danger, that's a a healthy fear. I'm talking about the two types of fear where there's the fear of man. The fear of man will hinder you from doing the right thing, but it will motivate you to do the wrong thing. It values the opinions of others over God. It is selfish. It doubts the promises of God, and it has a low view of God. How many of us just walk in a constant fear of man? Like, I don't want to make people upset. I don't want to do anything that ruffles anybody's feathers. God forbid I should offend somebody. What we're doing, we're just walking in somebody else's, you know, uh, sin of offense that they're prone to. And we cater to that and we enable it. I don't, what, what, what will they say about me? Or how will they perceive me? Well, how are you going to walk in courage if you're going to be so busy preserving the self? It's all about you preserving who you are and protecting who you are. You don't walk in fear of man. When you have a confidence of what God has called you to or what you know is right according to the, the word, then you walk in that confidence. And guess what? If they get upset or they get their feathers out of, you know, ruffled and out of shape, then that's Jesus' problem. That's not yours. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the ability to have sound mind, to walk in confidence, to walk in that courage. A lot of this too comes from a low view of who God is. I think it's great that what I'm seeing in a lot of churches to where, one, I, and I think I want to make God accessible to each and every one person, that we can boldly come before the Father as Scripture tells us. But I think that we've gone too far in a lot of instances where we have pulled God down to our level. We've made him almost like a college frat buddy. And we can just rub shoulders with him and everything. And that, you know, hey, he relates and he, you know, he does, has the same problems and everything. And just, we just kind of pull it down because the essence of that is, is that I don't want to rise up to what God's calling me to be. So I will bring him down to make him more accessible into how I can relate to him. If you have a low view of God, you're always going to walk in a fear of man. You're not seeing him as all-powerful, the all-present, the all-knowing. We have to learn a fear that will fight that type of fear, and that's a fear of God. 
Understanding what a fear of God, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We say, wait a minute, I want to fear God. I've gotten over this image that I've had of God as this disciplinarian. He's always unhappy with me and angry. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what fear of the Lord is. A fear of the Lord is this. It's a reflex response based upon awareness of God's glory and his majesty. It's a trust and a love of God. It's a hope in God. It's an obedience to God, wanting to honor, to magnify, to glorify, to please, and to serve him. If fear of God involves the intellect, the emotions, the attitudes, and the action, it is a high view of who God is. It is a reverential awe of who God is. That's what a fear of God is, of knowing that there's something that transcends you, that is greater than you. Yes, he's accessible. Yes, he is a friend. And scripture says, you're my friends if you're obedient and follow my commandments. But yes, he is a friend. And that you can boldly go before him. But let's not forget that he is the one and holy and mighty God. And he's bigger than any of us. And if we can walk in that sense of knowing, then we can have the courage and build the character that is necessary to be a courageous people. The way that we get this, we overcome fear, is that we turn and lean. We turn away from our sin, and we repent of the fear of man, and we lean into God's word and focus into a deeper understanding of who he is. That's how we overcome. I believe there are many here this morning that where you are walking in fear of your circumstances... That you're not wanting to face your fear. You're not wanting to face your circumstances. All you're looking for is just a way out. And I get that. I understand that. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's heartbreaking. But stop and ask, God, what is it you want me to learn in the midst of this? This circumstance is a teaching tool. It's an opportunity. So help me to see so that I may continue to grow in my character, to grow in a sense of knowing that you reign upon the throne and look, there is light at the other end of this tunnel. God, help me not to walk in a fear of man or fear of others. While they may be able to bring some temporary affliction in my life, I have to be looking with an eternal perspective of knowing, God, that you have my future, you have my destiny, you have my eternity. And so my goal, Lord, is to serve you no matter what it is that you call me to do. That's how you will embrace your destiny. And there are others that God's given you a dream God's put something upon your heart, but you look and you go, the risk is so great. I could lose everything, or I could lose that, or I could look foolish, or I could, you know, I I could lose my reputation if I step out and do this. Again, until you're willing to lay yourself down and to sacrifice yourself, you will never know. There's so many people, I believe, who have unrealized destinies or unrealized dreams simply because they're not willing to step off into the pit and to take that opportunity. So I believe there's some here that opportunity is presenting itself. And you don't just make irrational decisions. That's what I'm saying. You get wise counsel. You pray. You deliberate. You really bring it before the Lord. And you seek his wisdom in the midst of that. 
But when you know that it's something that you should step into, there has to be a point of God, I choose to walk in a fear of who you are, knowing that you are greater than this situation, knowing that you are God, and knowing no matter what, Lord, I am under the shadow of your wings. And that whatever you call me to, I know that you will be there in the midst of that. Some of you have been praying for a, you know, your destiny to be realized, but it will never be realized until you're willing to get out of the way. Until you're willing to sacrifice. And that requires a sacrifice. So I want to pray this morning that for both these situations, those that are going through challenging circumstances where they're fearful and feels overwhelming, and that those that are on the, on the cusp of something new, on something being realized, that God would intervene in both of those situations to where we can continue to become more like Him, realized more into His image, and embrace the destiny that God has for us. So Father, I ask, Lord, that those that are going through challenging circumstances, wherever it may be in this room, wherever they may be in the world right now that are watching, Lord, that you would give them a supernatural grace. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.